1: And thanks so much for joining me today on 5G Talent Talk. I am thrilled to have with me, James Childs. He is the Senior Vice President of Spectrum Strategy at GeoLinks. James, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: It's great to be here and be able to spend a few minutes talking about some things that we're both passionate
1: about. Before we get started, I'd like to hear more about how you got where you are today.
2: It's actually kind of interesting I look back sometimes and I think wow what a strange trip it's been right as that adage so often applies to our our life as it rolls out but I was a behavioral science student at university and it's still a passion of mine and I spend some time you know working on different things within my community that address some of the societal issues that we face in particular addiction and And different aspects of how to help an inmate population kind of return to society. So that might be the focus Mm -hmm. of another podcast at some point. But it certainly, you know, began my university career, and then out of university went to work for you know big Fortune 100 Novell at the time, and. I had a brother. So, Novell, obviously, people will know Novell, at least historically, from both their acquisition of WordPerfect. So, there was this rush to kind of who was going to own the processing side of life. And then servers were a big thing for Novell, right? So, no, the Novell network licensing was. And I always joke with people now because they think I was in K through 12 cells, but everybody needed these new servers and licenses for the ability for servers to communicate. So, joke with people now that I was ruined a little bit because it was such an easy sales process. I'd get school district IT people on the phone and they would just say, where do I sign kind of a thing. (laughs) For a young person coming out of university, entering the sales world, that's not necessarily a reflective reality on how difficult sometimes it is to move the needle from a sales and a business development perspective. But Anyway, I had a brother working for Microsoft at the time. We would get together on the weekends having barbecues, and we'd both kind of banter between the two of us about who was going to be the king of the of technology in the space. And of course, I don't know, some would say I'd, I lost that argument, but even more important, those weekend conversations turned into are sort of paying attention to this trend of migration from dial-up to what was then considered broadband, which funny enough was 256K to 500K. And and even if you could get a T1 at a megabit, that generally was quite expensive and and relatively rare. The telephone companies at the time kind of were were the cutting edge of that migration between dial-up and then what became broadband. And there was an interesting thing going on in the West. And I think a lot of states, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, I mean, there's quite a few that were dealing with the same challenges. And the challenge was construction was happening at such a frantic pace. And we've gone through a couple of other cycles. This was back in the late 90s, right before the turn of the millennial into the year 2000. But the construction trends were of such that somebody would be building a house call to get telephone and broadband service and be told that, yes, we'll put you on the list and we think we can get to you sometime 12 to 14 months from now. That was a very typical answer at the time. My brother and I, we decided, well, let me step one step back. We had just began deploying some wireless broadband bridges to just move data around from building to building. I started to become familiar with how that process was working. And these were early Cisco work group bridges. Part of those weekend conversations, I said to him, well, look, you guys have a T1 down at your clubhouse for the business and the property that he owned. Would they let you put some equipment on the roof? And and honestly, that one question that we sent him on the errand to go ask then started really what then became an ISP here in the state of Utah known as LightLink. And we ran that from about 2000 to 2004. And it really was a weekend project for a while where we connected him and then a neighbor heard about it and then that neighbor. And it was just almost a wildfire type experience. Everybody wanted to get off of dial up and there were very few choices to be able to do that. And wireless, certainly moving around wireless in the way that we call, you know, wireless ISPs today, there wasn't really a Definition of a business like that. At the time, we're part of sort of the first club of people that created one of the first wireless ISPs in the country, and that really became a theme for my career.
1: Talk about GeoLinks. Give us a little more color there, and also your role at GeoLinks.
2: GeoLinks is an enterprise fixed wireless ISP, and our network—we call it our core network, our native network—and. I'll mention why we sort of segregate certain parts of our network later. But that native network, which was founded by Skylar Ditchfield and Ryan Helf, stretches now from 50 miles north of the San Francisco Bay Area all the way down to nearly the Mexican border and services a lot of different businesses, both primary and redundant connectivity, as well as disaster preparedness, and also a lot of anchor institutions. In the last few years, I've only been a part of the business since May. But in the last few years, the business has really year over year grown tremendously. It's been an Inc. 5000 fastest growing company. I believe this conclusion will be the fourth year they're growing not only in revenue, but also their participation in the broadband ecosystem in the state of California, including trying to solve real problems, right? And this is what I've always been energized about and appreciated and respected about the DNA and the heritage of the company was where people were saying no, that it was impossible to get faster data to Certain areas. And you would say, like, people think about California, you think about San Francisco and Los Angeles and all these big, kind of, metro areas that people know about. But California has a lot of rural areas where there is not a lot of wired infrastructure. It's also a a massive state. So maybe that isn't too surprising. Geolinks. Is truly in the business of solving problems today. They support the remote camera installations for the alert wildfire projects. And everybody knows that's become increasingly more important over the last three or four years. Early detection of wildfire puts a beneficial angle to being able to respond earlier. So those infrared cameras that are on remote Hilltops are some of the things that we provide the transport for. So that's just one of thousands of examples of places that we believe we're making a solid difference in the state of California.
1: What excites you about your current role? Maybe some cool things that you're working on. What excites you about the future of our industry?
2: My function for GeoLinks is to manage spectrum assets, and I probably left that out with the earlier question, but GeoLinks was able to successfully negotiate and acquire over 200 markets worth of 29 to 31 gig spectrum. It's called the LMDS bands. The 28 gigahertz band in general, which is what this spectrum falls within that same range, it'll, it used to all be part of the LMDS spectrum. And of course, the commission's activities over recent years created what's called the UMFUS bands, which now T-Mobile, Verizon, US Cellular, AT&T, biggest of the big mobile network operators in the country are now utilizing millimeter wave bands for home fixed wireless access products, as well as mobility to handsets. And so Geolinks, I think, was uniquely in the right place at the right time to negotiate successfully with Verizon and gain access to these spectrum assets, which will allow it, in effect, both in California and Nevada to continue to build out using licensed spectrum. But also, my passion, to the second part of your question, is to be able to help the organization leverage and utilize these assets for the benefit of many, many other wireless ISPs and other broadband service providers, utilities, especially rural utilities, university healthcare care systems, et cetera, that operate all over the country that can benefit from the use of license spectrum. And so my specific role within the business is to drive the strategy in which those spectrum assets will be utilized and monetized.
1: So you talk a lot about licensed and unlicensed spectrum. So can you define the two of these and also talk more about the benefits of licensed spectrum?
2: Yeah, sure, sure. So going back to like where the world started in the movement of wireless broadband, We had at the time, and I think people in my generation, I'm going to date myself. by Actually, I'd be dating myself if I'd be talking about rotary phones, which is what was in my house growing up. But beyond that, just a few years, we came into cordless phones. Those cordless phones were typically using 900 megahertz. And 900 megahertz was part of an unlicensed segment of Spectrum. And it still is. There's still IoT networks that are using 900 megahertz. And I'm sure there are some cordless phones somewhere still running on 900 megahertz as well. But at the time you had 900 megahertz and then you had 2.4 gigahertz. And 2.4 gigahertz, of course, is sort of the mainframe of Wi-Fi. It was where Wi-Fi originated. It was where Wi-Fi's glory days were born from. And even now today, people, I mean, I don't know, like it'd probably be a fairly common thing for your listeners to be familiar with Ring, right? The doorbell and the cameras. Strangely enough, most of those technologies where they could use 5 gigahertz or other bands, they choose to use 2.4, partly because the rest of the high bandwidth pack has moved on to 5 gigahertz. But 2.4 also does a lot better of a job with getting through... How you know windows and and doors and walls. So mm-hmm. if you're familiar with Ring and if you're familiar with home Wi-Fi, which I don't know anybody anymore who doesn't have home Wi-Fi, you are using these bands in effect in your house to be able to do what you do when you pick up a phone and you're using Wi-Fi. That's also using those bands, and so unlicensed. Frequencies have been around for a long time, and we've seen the explosion of Wi-Fi as a transport means and as a connectivity means, right? The easiest way to describe sort of the spectrum landscape as it's matured is that you see a lot of activity around 2.4 and 5, a lot of commercial devices that utilize those bands. And now, over the last few years, we've had 60 gigahertz that's come up, too. And 60 gigahertz is quite familiar now with a lot of people. There's a lot of different broadband systems running at 60 gigahertz. People like Apple are talking about, you know, glass or Google are talking about glasses that will utilize 60 gigahertz to communicate. I I think my kids that wear the headset, the Oculus, I think they call it, right? I believe that it utilizes 60 gigahertz as a transport. So it uses massive channel sizes. It can't move bandwidth as far as some of the other lower bands, but it's still classified as an unlicensed spectrum. And so for me and my role, I get passionate about licensed spectrum, not because I don't appreciate everything that unlicensed spectrum is and does, but because people like me who are in the business of moving bits around in the air need to do so in a protected way way at times because my business model and that which I'm passionate about helping others build requires the transport of data from point A to point B. If you use an unlicensed band, which it does work, I'm not saying it it doesn't. There's thousands of wireless ISPs in the country that still use unlicensed frequencies for many purposes of providing services. But I've heard lots of stories about in between that point A and B, if somebody puts an HD baby monitor up as an example, it might completely take down the ability for that link that you were trying to sustain to work. And so license spectrum starts to remove some of the interference and some of the challenges that are more typical with heavy noise floor loud sub six environments where the more typical unlicensed spectrum sits so hopefully that's a bit of a description carry that that helps
1: let's discuss this concept of the digital divide internet everywhere for everyone from your perspective what does this mean to you
2: the definition itself is a statement of reality there are lots of places out there that don't have the same set of broadband options at the same price. Although I would say that that scenario is dwindling and it's dwindling for some... Well, actually, let me describe it this way. So significantly rural environments have long been served by what's called the USF program, right? Everybody over time that has ever had a telephone line or bought broadband, has paid a small sliver of that bill into what has been traditionally called the USF fund. And so very rural places, oddly enough, oftentimes have really significant fiber to the home networks even, right? Um, I know, and this is quite typical with rural environments out West, that the USF funded telephone companies have long been able to deliver quite solid service. The digital equity problem applies less to those significantly rural environments, more so with urban core type scenarios. So I don't necessarily equate digital equity as if I was terming, I wouldn't apply it to the presence or the absence of broadband infrastructure. I think that's a small part of it. I would compare it this way. If I have an automobile sitting out in my garage that... Nobody has ever showed me how to drive it or start it or use it or any of those things. It's going to sit in my garage as an idle, expensive, useless tool, right? But if somebody guides me through the process of how to drive it, how to successfully maintain it, how to utilize it for my benefit so that it can get me to more opportunity, then I'm prepared to be able to utilize the tool. In an adequate way. And I think that's more what we mean when we at the heart of what we talk about when we say a digital divide or driving for more equity within a digital landscape. So it's equally as important to have broadband, but then to be able to apply the lessons to how to use broadband. How is that going to help an individual, a family, a community to take advantage of the things that broadband can do if it's utilized properly, distance education, work from home. I mean, the list is quite long about the things that you can do if you're able to leverage broadband successfully. So that's Mm. kind of more of what I think, Carrie, when we talk about that term.
1: I love that perspective because it's not just making something available to someone, but it's also teaching them. How to use it and the benefit, all of what it can provide for them. And I think both of that points, those points are so important in this concept. So the infrastructure bill has passed. Let's talk about some updates here. How much of this is gonna to go to this, you know, bridging the digital divide as we were talking about, and what are some challenges that we see ahead with this funding?
2: I don't doubt that government intention is right in regards to solving the problem. But to think about it in terms of if you want an outcome that helps, again, individuals, families, and communities benefit from broadband infrastructure, the total answer is not simply in the cutting of a check, right? Mm -hmm. That could be a powerful catalyst as part of the recipe that needs to be applied But I worry simply in a scenario where we're micro-focused about the race to grab as much money or the race to write big checks, if it's not grounded by the proper programs that need to be in place for communities to be able to take advantage of getting their citizens and their community members the kinds of instruction and guidance that really will enable them to move forward successfully in their life i mean i I think about my own upbringing my own opportunities like i remember sitting in front of a commodore pet computer again that probably dates me but that was sort of in in my middle school years i remember being fascinated by you know being able to type something in and see it so for me early on getting exposed to technology led to an interest that has always remained We do have computers in the schools today, but the bar which must be set for somebody to take advantage of internet connectivity is more than just sitting them in front of a Commodore PET computer and letting them play Oregon Trail, which a lot of people my age will fondly remember. Now it's the schools and the community need to rally around to make these kinds of programs successful because the other example I would give is that. 22 states, something like that, today don't have broadband committees, broadband offices. So if you have a whole bunch of money coming in that needs to be applied to the right problems on each state and county level without sort of those kinds of teams in place that have been evaluating that state's or that regional geography's problems for, I would say, years, Clearly, you're not going to have that in 2022 states. If they do put those teams together very quickly, hopefully they can pull from anchor institutions, service providers, people that truly on the ground understand those local problems. And honestly, if I was in charge of any of that on a state level, that's how I would find my committee That's how I would assemble that. And I think that's extremely important to the responsible use of these remarkable amounts of money in order to make sure that projects really truly do deliver on their promise.
1: Mm. And also another way to make sure that projects deliver on their promises is to have the right people. And this is, you know, we're in the middle of a workforce crisis in our industry, and there's just simply not enough people, not enough skilled labor, and, you know, it is a concern for every business leader, I think everyone right now in any industry. So, are you having challenges with finding talent at Geolinks right now?
2: Yeah, I think it's a challenge. I mean, it's not necessarily in my daily set of activities to worry about, but as a member of that executive team, I'm well aware of the open requisitions for different positions, all the way from customer service to infrastructure implementation, to technical support. There's a wide set of roles that are required to make an ISP run effectively. Thankfully, you know we've been blessed to this point to have pretty good people across our middle management, And but the company is growing so fast in part because of recent federal subsidy wins. And that was the comment I was aiming to circle back to, the differences between our core network and what we're calling our expansion markets are funded by some federal subsidy programs, including the CAF-2 program and ARDOF. And so with $300-plus of subsidies on its way into our business, we're, we're significantly challenged with what it will take in order to effectively be able to build within the timeframes that are required. Now, I'd say significantly challenged. We've been great about being able to exceed the construction requirements on the CAF2 program so far, but soon with RDOF, we expect here at the start of the year to begin funding, then we'll have multiple new projects on new fronts to be coordinating construction for. And we will leverage, of course, different contractors so that we can build faster because we definitely want to get the network out and built into the hands and making it usable to the people that those monies were intended to serve. Our answer, Carrie, is to lean on some growth internally, of course, but then also try to find contractors. But that, I think, highlights the problem because many of them that operate great business units, I'm thinking of Tilson and T3. And if I tried to give you that entire list, I would be keeping somebody off. And But anyway, there's a lot of really, really good programs out there. But even they are struggling to find qualified people. It's not just people, it's qualified people. It's people that are trained, that understand how to install fiber, that understand how to install wireless, or that are qualified to be on roofs or on towers. There's a big process of getting an individual both trained and able to perform those core infa- filled infrastructure functions, not just something you can study, you know, your senior year of high school and be ready to 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 be cinched up and climbing a tower. You have to have more specialized training and it is a challenge.
1: Right, and training is the key, that's the word. And I think the companies that you've mentioned and the ones that you didn't mention, I think they all do have very strong training programs and that they are faring better in this crisis, this workforce crisis. So do you have any final thoughts on what you see trending in the industry, maybe, some ways that we can work together to create some solutions to some of our challenges that we're facing.
2: I think on the shortage of people, I hope that that problem corrects itself because some would say that the pandemic, whatnot, the ripples from that created elements that led into the shortage of both goods and human resource to apply to the problems that we all face within the broadband. Industry, and maybe that's accurate, but moving forward with the injection of so much money through this infrastructure bill and just the native growth like, there's plenty of people that are running service provider business units out there that maybe aren't federally subsidized but are growing exponentially fast. I can think of a lot of rural utilities that are now deploying fiber as an example of a group of service providers that are growing. So I think that we'll have to continue as an industry to incentivize instruction and incentivize what I I think there needs to be more programs, Carrie, on a community college and a technical college level that deals specifically with infrastructure. I've heard a couple of people recently Mm -hmm. that have talked about sort of lineman school that applies to the electrical utility. We need something like that. Because oftentimes they're trying to recruit those people coming out of lineman school that incentivize them to possibly look at fiber optics or something that's just tangential to electricity. Broadband's a utility. It's now, you know, I think, unfortunately, sometimes people pay their broadband bill before they'll pay their water and their sewer bill because it is really that important. And because it's that important, we need to apply our best answers to it. And we're glad at both myself and also our entire team at GeoLink's to be a part of what we hope is the answer to supplying innovative ways to get connectivity to places that have not been able to be served adequately in the past. And I think the last comment I would make with the climate problems, with the issues in in relation to disaster preparedness, I think you're going to see more and more that multiple internet paths are going to be required for key, especially for key anchor institutions. I don't want my 911 center to have a single fiber path out of that building. What happens if it gets cut? What happens if an earthquake disrupts it, floods, whatever, right? There needs to be sort of a combination of different transport technologies. And I would put wired in the ground, whether that's coax or fiber or whatever, alongside terrestrial wireless, like we supply at GeoLinks, and then potentially LEO stuff, right, within the satellite industry, which is set to explode in its growth over the next few years. So we're sitting now at the start of what I would call the next phase of broadband, where different transport mechanisms are utilized to provide solid enough connections to the most important of our societal institutions. And I'm glad to be a part of that.
1: Hmm. The next phase of broadband. I love that. And GeoLinks yeah. is at that, the forefront of that. So can you tell me the website for GeoLinks, or where people could go to learn more or possibly even look at careers?
2: Just geolinks.com. I believe we have a careers uh, tab at the bottom, and we'd love to hear from people who are interested in joining our team. We expect we're going to grow by a factor of two to three times the number of employees we have today over the next two to three years. I think we're somewhere around 140 or so employees. So that gives you an idea of what we're targeting as far as our growth pattern.
1: Nice, nice. Well, James, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has just been fascinating. And I agree with you. We could have talked about either any one of these points for hours. So I appreciate your time. Thanks so much.
2: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: Yes, take care.
2: Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to another informative episode of 5G Talent Talk brought to you by RCR Wireless News, Telecom Careers, and Broadstaff Talent Solutions. As we advance into the future, we promise to bring you the resources you need to navigate this ever-changing landscape of 5G to help you attract, retain, and engage people in this new world of work. To access the show notes or leave a review, visit broadstaffglobal.com. Until next time.